welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So we are recording on Tuesday, December 8th, a few days before Hanukkah, uh, one day before uh, your, uh, I guess this is your last uh, Beit Midrash Wednesday class in this uh, first mini-series. Is, am I right? Is this the fourth? Yep. Fourth of mm-hmm. four? Okay. So tell me what you're, what you're teaching about this Wednesday, because it's uh, very relevant to, uh, to Hanukkah. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is most certainly not a coincidence. Um, <laughs> Um, for this fourth class in uh, Agadot, Talmudic narratives, which talk about how the rabbis dealt with uncertainty in the world, we're going to be learning a, uh, a story about Adam Harishon, about uh, the primordial Hanukkah, as described in Masachat Avodazara, Daf Chet Amud Aleph 8a. There's a story about Adam Harishon establishing a holiday. First, Adam Harishon is like cast into this great darkness and despair and kind of sadness, he thinks that because the days are getting shorter and darkness is encroaching, that he's being punished, that the world's going to go back to tova vo, to chaos and confusion. He thinks that he's going to die. Right, because Adam HaRishon, the, the, he's made, he's created in, let's say, Rosh Hashanah, uh, so in, in the, the late uh, summer. And so for he's cast out of the garden and in the aftermath of his sin. And so every day it gets darker and darker and darker. Uh, for his entire, like, that's all he knows about the right. world, is that every day it gets, in the aftermath of his sin, it gets darker and darker every day. So that that's sort of right. alarming to him, according to the Gemara right. of Zara. If you've never experienced, right, the changing of the seasons, and this is, right, you're Adam HaRishon, you can imagine, right, his logical conclusion is, like, I know how to follow a pattern, right? If the days are continuously getting shorter and the night is getting longer, then it'll eventually reach a point where there's only darkness. So that's his fear. And he says, woe is me, right? Maybe because I've sinned, the world is being returned to its state of chaos. That's his fear. So he, he gets up and he fasts for eight days. And then he's, he experiences the winter solstice, right? And he's like, oh, daylight's getting longer. And he says, ah, okay, I get it now, right? I get it now. This is how seasons work, right? This is how the changing of the seasons will work. And he, ha- he establishes this eight-day festival uh, celebrating the light, which is could correspond to our eight-day festival corresponding to light. So he goes and he establishes this eight-day festival. And in the following year, he makes this, he makes actually both of them, says the Gemara, uh, Yamim Tovim. So it's interesting to think about, he also celebrated the days where he thought he was going to to die. So the the shortest day, the last last days of the year and the, I mean, the the shortest days and when the days begin to get longer again. So on on either side of the winter solstice on... December 21st. Right. So, and it says interesting in the Gemara, right? Hukva'am l'shem shamayim. Adam Arishon actually did it for the sake of heaven. He, he knew about God and he knew this was God's work. Vehem kva'um l'shem avadakochavim, right? Other nations celebrate around this time, but they're doing it for idol worship, for star worship, right? So it's kind of noting that there are so many festivals of light that go on around this time. And that it's kind of this natural response to the to the days getting darker or the night getting longer, and it just makes sense. But the, this Gemara takes it and makes it for the sake of God, right? And and there are other descriptions in the Talmud of how we transform this festival of light into focusing on other themes, right? Like the home, family, spreading light, right? In our modern iterations, it's a lot about like spreading light to the world. Um, 
and making meaning out of that in our own specific way as Jews. I've always understood that that Gemara in Avodah Zarah to be criticizing uh, primordial man, Adam Harishon, for establishing a holiday around the solstice in his declaration, oh, this is just the way of the world. The days get shorter and then they get longer, uh, as opposed to what he has mistaken, understanding that the world was diminishing each day as a consequence of his sin. Uh, That uh, mistaken perspective is more like religious and that's some ways more appropriate. And that by celebrating the seasons, it invites an idolatrous perspective wherein Um, our moral behavior, our righteous living is disconnected from the natural world, right? There are forces at play Mm. and some are mechanistic and maybe there are other, you know, metaphysical forces and powers that are interfering in the world, but, and maybe we can appease them perhaps at times, but it's totally disconnected from ethics and morality and righteous living. Uh, And that's, I think, essentially an idolatrous perspective. And so he did Mm. it, L'Shem Shemayim, right? He did it, you know, recognizing God as, as his creator, but... Uh, in his establishment of a holiday at the solstice, um, it, it, it sort of, in, you know, to celebrate, oh, this isn't because of my sin, this is just the world working and operating, that kind of invites an idolatrous uh, perspective. And then I, I see Hanukkah not as like the development of his, eight, you know, eight-day holiday, but as a, a response to it. Interesting. I would tend to disagree. <laughs> oh, great. I love... I don't know, right? It's it's a machloket in how you read those last two lines, uh, uh, right? That are uh, like amended there, right? That the Gemara is making clear, right? Other other people celebrate uh, for the sake of idol worship, but Adam Rishon was doing it for the sake of heaven. So it could be that they're looking back and, and doing apologetics, right? Align align with what you were saying, of right? This seems problematic, right? He's responding to nature and. Right, we're a nation of God, and we know that we're not necessarily only tied to the rhythms and, of nature. And, and Hanukkah itself is a celebration of like triumph over nature. We say al hanisim, right? It's, right? it's this miraculous overturning That's of the way things normally are. And so we celebrate miracles, whereas a solstice celebration is a celebration really of the seasons. So I don't know. I kind of love that it's in tune with nature and reflective of the natural seasons and that we're responding to it. And there's an overlay of... Right, miracle, and God, right? God is responding to that as well, and helping us add light to the world, right? With the Hanukkah miracle, or or the war, whatever miracle you want to focus on, but right, even even within the machloket about what the miracle is, right? Whether or not the war was a natural victory, or right, right, we really could see that we did it ourselves, or or God was the one taking over, right? There's a little bit of, right? I guess that, that theme of ambiguity, but we know that God is there orchestrating things. Right. You might think, but the Jewish perspective is to say God is here too. God is active here as well. I don't know. Um, that's yeah, that's a compelling read. I, <laughs> I we, we may not you can uh, disagree. We have to agree to disagree or agree to have our machloket uh, endure. Uh, but I would encourage anyone listening to this uh, to, to come and attend your class Wednesday evening, uh, beginning at 8.15, to explore this, this amazing, wonderful seasonal Gemara. Uh, and if you miss it, uh, they can follow up on the YouTube channel and watch and then follow up with either or one of us. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. And say, who, <laughs> say whose perspective you think, is, you think is right. Or if you, uh, yeah. probably there are many, many, certainly there are many, many perspectives, yes. uh, even beyond what we said. So, Looking okay. forward to learning Torah. The more voices, the better. The more disagreement, the better. <laughs>
So I'm very grateful that we are joined today with Professor Avi Helfand. Uh, Avi Helfand is the Vice Dean for Faculty and Research and a Professor of Law at the Caruso School of Law at Pepperdine University out in California. But despite living in California, Professor Helfand is an old West Sider, uh, as am I. That's, that's where we first uh, met each other. And uh, in recent years, he's become my... Uh, I don't know, go-to guide for constitutional law and uh, issues of religious freedom. Uh, many of you may remember that he taught at uh, Anshay Shalom on these topics uh, several years ago. And uh, and since then, I've been really uh, the, avidly reading uh, his uh, publications, uh, not as scholarly publications, but when he writes in the Jewish media and Jewish newspapers, op-eds of, of all kinds, I've, I've paid close attention. It's been very, very helpful to me. And so I, I reached out to Professor Helfand uh, last week to try to make sense of the Supreme Court's decision concerning uh, convening for prayer uh, in this uh, pandemic uh, related to the New York State um, health guidelines. And uh, I found it extremely, extremely helpful. And so I am really just very, very grateful that uh, Professor Helfand is also uh, making his expertise available, not just to me, (laughs) but also to the listeners of of this podcast. So welcome and, and thank you so much. Um, my pleasure, Rabbi Walkenfeld. Am I allowed to say that um, if you get to say that you're reading me, I get to say that that I follow you um, when I'm looking for the uh, moral voice of the rabbinate. Um, so uh, um, the feeling is mutual and um, excited to be catching up again. Thank, thank you so much. That, that's very, that's very kind of you. Uh, so, so I, I called really agitated. I, I, I had sent you some very, uh, you know, um, emotional paragraphs that I had written in response to the Supreme Court decision. I thought uh, it was outrageous that um, that there were religious Jewish communities that were turning to the Supreme Court to overturn health guidelines when our community has been prioritizing health and safety. And most of the Orthodox rules that I know of have been prioritizing health and safety. Why were we, why were there some synagogues looking f- to cut corners, looking for excuses and leniencies? And why was the Supreme Court intervening? So you helped calm me down. And uh, so what did you tell me then? What can you share um, the background of the Supreme Court decision? What should we, what do we have to understand about it? Um, you know, I think like, like with so much law, you know, law is a good story. But sometimes the details of the story matter. And, you know, in this case in particular, I think the details matter to figure out what the Supreme Court did and didn't do, what the plaintiffs were asking for and what they weren't asking for. And, you know, maybe one way to think about this is just against the backdrop, you know, we're all balancing uh, different values throughout this pandemic. I mean, that is the the one thing we know for sure. Um, We all take some risks. And we take those risks in ways that we think are smart. I always tell my kids, we try to take smart risks. And um, we also, in certain instances, don't take risks. And it all depends on kind of what the benefit is, what the consequences are, what other kinds of risks um, we're trying to balance. So I think every shul, every house of worship, every person is trying to figure out, you know, what the right, what the right middle ground is. And you know, thought about that way, you know, one of the things you have to realize about the New York regulations was they had two components. So you had these hot spots, um, red zones, orange zones, and yellow zones. And, you know, let's take the red zones, for example. The, you know, these are the areas that Governor Cuomo really wanted to regulate. He was particularly concerned about the number of cases in the red zones. And there were two kinds of regulations. One was um, you had to have 25% capacity. That was the maximum capacity in a house of worship in a red zone. Um, But the other was you also were um, capped at 10 people and you had to meet both requirements. So you have a 
you have a shul or a church or something else that fits, you know, like some of the plaintiffs, 1,400 people. Um, the answer was you could only have 10 people in it, which was also true if you had a shul that could only fit, you know, 200 people. Same rule. You, always, you had to meet both, and as a result, you're capped to 10. And I think people didn't realize that the court's order only got rid of, only lifted that 10-person cap. But these 25% uh, 25% rules, those are still in place. And it's, it's a long way of saying it's not like the Supreme Court last week said, forget it, no public health rules. What it said was the 10-person cap was too much. And the reason why it was too much was because the Supreme Court thought you could rely on the 25% rule. So it was a way of balancing public health and religion. It wasn't like, you know, like some people read the decision and said, you know, forget public health, throw, throw caution to the wind. We can, we're essential businesses. We can do whatever we want. I don't think that's right. I think the Supreme Court was trying to draw a line, a print, uh, what they thought was a principled line. I think that balanced the uh, two different considerations. Let, let me let me jump in and ask, since you mentioned that we're all making balances between different values, uh, which is something I appreciate very much, who, who makes that decision? Why is that left to the Supreme Court and not the state of New York or not each individual family you know, or individual to make those balances and risks? And right. And some, there has to be some collective action, right? We can't because, um, you know, it's a, that's the nature of viruses. They spread. Uh, so why the Supreme Court and not the state of New York? Um, and, and also not just the individual people, you know, yeah. yes, uh, given your uh, taxonomy. Um, so, you know, I think with respect to people, I think we let's let's put those off the table. Individual decision making, as you know, I think uh, rightfully is, I mean, there's some room for it, but can be challenging. Um, I, you know, one of the things that the First Amendment does is it really wants government when it's making decisions around religion. It doesn't want um, religion and religious reasons to be uh, to hold less weight, to be devalued, as compared to other non-religious values. That's one of the things that the First Amendment is meant to protect against. Um, so, as a general matter, I would say, sure, you know, states maybe it should have been the federal government, but you know, that ship, for better or for worse, has sailed. Um, states, um, government is making decisions uh, about these things, um, and the one thing, you know, one of the primary things that the First Amendment, and in turn, the courts are supposed to protect against is, uh, in this arena, making sure that religion isn't devalued with respect to other non-religious values. This is a really hard thing to do, and I, I don't think people appreciate how hard it is because of the way in which regulation of the pandemic happens. What we have is, we, we have a calculus. Um, we recognize that even if we want to care deeply about public health, and we really are risk averse. There are some risks we're going to have to take. It's impossible for us to survive if we take no risks. People have to go to groceries. Obviously, with respect to a pandemic, it would be better if nobody went to groceries. But that's impossible. Nobody would have food. You know, once you realize that, you realize that our risk calculus isn't a perfect risk calculus, but it also um, has to make decisions on the other side of the ledger. We have to figure out what is valuable enough for us to take risks for? We take risks for food. That's and that seems you know pretty intuitive. But once you do that and you start building out what regulation and the pandemic looks like, you realize it's going to be industry specific. And, and this is where things get challenging. It's not like we say to people, we can't have 10 people getting together ever. Or we can't have 25 people getting together ever. What we say is it depends what you're doing. 
once you say those words as a government, yeah, everybody wants you know the thing they're doing to be more valuable. Um, and government has done a, an uneven job in responding to this challenge. So you want to have rules that you know track our basic intuitions about what it makes sense to take risks for and what it doesn't make sense to take risks for. If you ask me for the worst example of this, you know there was this challenge the Supreme Court um, uh, could have addressed back in July in Nevada. You had a rule. Here's how it went. It went something like this. If you're a house of worship, you could only have, I believe it was up to 50 people. Please forgive me if I'm getting the precise detail wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was up to 50 people in the house of worship, regardless of size. And in casinos in Nevada, you could have up to 50% capacity. So if you're a house of worship, you know, you have a couple of people, you have your 50 people, that's it, you're done. Casinos could be 50% full. Now, if you ask me from a risk perspective, which is more risky, people praying in a in a church or synagogue or people, forgive me, having a couple of drinks while they're, you know, at the craps table, you know, I have a pretty strong view on this. I'm pretty sure I feel safer in a church um, than I would at a casino. And that's not the decision the government that Nevada made. Now, under normal circumstances, screwing this up isn't a constitutional problem. But the First Amendment says that if, if you're devaluing religion as compared to other non-religious values, then we have a problem. That's considered like targeting religion. And you can see how questions of bias slip into this calculus of, you know, what should we take risks for? And when you think about the, the fact that Nevada, you know, certainly for business reasons to help ensure people had jobs and generate revenue, decided to keep casinos open, but keep churches, you know, far more closed. Um, then, then you can see, or at least to my mind, you know, that's when courts ought to get involved, where courts ought to say to government, we hear what you're doing, but we're, we think there's something wrong with what you're willing to take risks for. And we think it's because you just don't think religion is important enough. And, and if you ask us why, it's because we see what you're doing for casinos. And that something about that doesn't seem right. Now, I'll tell you, when this case came before the court in July, the court didn't get involved. Five justices decided, no, this isn't something we're going to get involved in. Four conservative justices said, no, this is a really big deal. Something's gone wrong here. But there weren't five votes at the time. So when you say to me, you know, who should who should decide? Yeah, I like the idea for governments to, in good faith, to do their best, to try to figure out what it makes sense for us as a society to take risks for. But there are challenges at times where because religion isn't valued enough as compared to other values, that courts have to step in and say, the Constitution doesn't quite allow that. From our perspective, as people active in religious communities, how do you think of our role? To, should we, you know, in advocating for our own rights, you know, value us, consider us essential? We're also saying, let us take more risks with the lives of our members. Is that a something that rubs me the wrong way about um, activism around, you know, you know, to, around essentially? Um, the right to take on additional risk that would be, you know, that would otherwise be the case. Is that, is that a, a stand? Like, I don't know, it makes me uncomfortable for a religious institution to be, you know, suing or advocating or pleading for, let us take more risks, <laughs> let, let more of us get sick or let, you know, that potential exist. Well, you know, I, I guess, you know, how do you feel about the other risks we're taking? I guess that's really what I'd ask you. You know, there are some things we say you can take risks for. And the assumption is that those decisions are being made in good faith by government and their accurate assessments of you know where we are in terms of risk. 
And, you know, they provide a little bit of a baseline to compare other decisions government is making. So it would certainly be odd to me, at least, you know, maybe other people have different views. If we said, listen, we're not taking any risks. You can have a couple of people in businesses, you keep sports complexes closed, nobody in theaters, but, you know, houses of worship, no rules. That, that would, that would be weird to kind of open up houses of worship and keep everything else closed. But, you know, the decision-making matrix is more complicated, you know, in New York, you know, in some of these red zones, for example, um, essential businesses were open at 100 percent, you know, assuming they could abide by social distancing rules. Houses of worship were limited to 10 people. You know, is that discrepancy, does it make enough? Can we justify it? The Supreme Court th thought no. The Supreme Court thought the idea that in red zones, houses of worship um, would be limited to 10 people regardless of size. And again, some of these churches could fit like 1,400 people. But all these different kinds of essential businesses, and essential businesses, you know, as we all, I think, have learned, can be a little bit of a loose category, could be at 100% capacity. Something felt off over there. I, I think some people read the court's decision to say, the court was saying houses of worship are just as important as other as essential businesses. They didn't. They said, leave houses of worship at 25%, leave essential businesses at 100%. That seems like a okay place to leave things given the public health considerations. But, you know, when you say, how can we take more risks I, I, as a religious community, I guess I would respond by saying, we're already taking risks. Why is it that we're not willing to take risks that are even that they're not even in the same ballpark and we're not even willing to take those for houses of worship when we are willing for a wide variety of other things. Um, is that because we think those risks make sense? Does it say something about government's values? You know, that's the hard question, I think. Yeah. You know, here in Illinois, our governor backed down in the face of a similar lawsuit in, in May, I believe, and we have not had new regulations on convening for prayer uh, since the summer, uh, even as you know, cases have gone up and other regulations have returned and other restrictions have been reimposed, we've been sort of been left alone because uh, our governor backed down and didn't want to face those types of lawsuits. And I feel okay in our shul because we have lots of physicians in the community uh, who have been fighting COVID since March and have been very generous of their time and they've reassured us and they've helped us tweak our policies uh, week by week. Uh, but I don't know, not every... Surely not every house of worship in the state of Illinois has uh, is filled with physicians and every relevant specialty who are able to offer guidance. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, I, I don't know that I feel more free because the city and state have not um, reissued and, and tweaked their guidelines. Um, I feel a little, you know, I, I wouldn't mind if they, uh, you know, circled back and gave us some updates. Um, yeah, I hear it. I mean, it, it's not surprising. Like, you know, this is a, this is, to say it's a complex issue is like uh, to undersell it. I mean, this is the most extraordinary public health challenge that, you know, the world has faced in at, at least a century. And not surprisingly, as a result, what we need is we need um, government to try to engage in both good faith and, you know, somewhat, I don't want to say nuance, I don't feel like that doesn't capture anything. They need to be able to, to draw complicated lines. They need you don't want to say absolutely no risk. You don't want to say bring on all the risk. So you don't want government to just kind of bail because they say, listen, you know, there's something religious going on over here. We're not interested in lawsuits. You know, therefore, 
everybody have at it. That's not that's not responsible governance. So maybe elephants in the room in terms of the reaction and my emotional reaction and some other people I was in touch with and reaction to this this decision last week. Um, I'm not sure that our community, all of its breadth and diversity, has responded with appropriate responsibility towards this pandemic. I think the modern Orthodox community, the centrist Orthodox community, the center-right Orthodox community has been very responsible in, in a really heroic way, I believe, really exemplary way that we've lived out our values of caring for human life and respecting prayer and respecting halakha in a really a way that I think we can be really proud of, but not the, the entire Orthodox world has not acted in that way. And while um, I think the Aguda itself as an organization, as a representative of Haredi Judaism, has said appropriate things and has called for responsible um, convening of shuls. The shuls that have not been so responsible have been the shuls that have been within the constituency uh, represented by the Aguda, for whom the Aguda speaks. And uh, and that piece of it you know, rubs me the wrong way to advocate for freedom, uh, but without taking responsibility for keeping our own house clean and, and protecting the lives of our own, you know, our brothers and sisters in those Haredi neighborhoods who have been getting sick in shuls and at uh, weddings and, and other smachot and funerals, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think... Listen, I think that's I think that's obviously correct in terms of what's generating this reaction, this idea that, you know, how can we play with lives? What's the behavior look like? Um, we're really advocating for more freedom. Do we really deserve it, given the way in which, you know, not just among, within the Jewish community, the entire United States? I mean, are people really being, you know, who's being responsible, who's not being responsible? You know, uh, it's tough. That's uh, that's tough. I, I would say, though, I, you know. My strong feeling on this is we need to disaggregate the questions in some way. On the one hand, um, we need to do better. I mean, you know, I, you and I chatted a little bit in advance of a piece I wrote for JTA uh, earlier this week. Um, you know, we we need to do better as a community, and it's I would even say the idea that we can advocate for, or I should say again, some of these more stringent rules where you know, ten people in a in a church of fourteen hundred seems excessive. But those only work to the extent that kind of the fallback positions, these 25% capacities, that we adhere to them as a community. So, you know, part of that is about messaging around the Supreme Court's decision. Um, you know, first disaggregating it, noting that, like, we need to do better, and separately also noting that government can't devalue religion in certain ways. Now, I want to note that it's a complicated question how to view this from a legal perspective. The Supreme Court took an aggressive view about what devaluing religion looked like. And, you know, I'm. I'm of two minds on kind of how to read what the Supreme Court did, but certainly it was a reasonable view the Supreme Court took in terms of devaluing religion. It certainly seems like a principled view for you know the Jewish community to say we don't want you to devalue religion, and separately we have to be committed to to doing better, to adhering to the remaining guidelines, and making sure um, that we're we're acting responsibly. And I, I'd say one more thing on that point. You know the reason why the Supreme Court said the 10 person rule was problematic was in part because there were more tailored ways to get at the problem. Again, these 25% rules that tie limitations to the size of the institution, um, ways in which that are, you know, meant to protect public health. You know, obviously if, if people aren't following rules, so the logic doesn't make much sense. Um, you can't say to me, listen, we don't need 10 person rule, a 10 person rule because we're maxing capacity at 25%. And then everyone just, takes the signal from this opinion says, oh, no rules, you know, everybody in. So then we're in trouble. And to me, that's why I think it's so important for anybody who's talking about or speaking about or, 
kind of interrogating, thinking through, applying, running an institution that, that deals with these rules has to message what actually happened. What actually happened was the most draconian and onerous rules that were on the table were a problem. But the fundamental rules about capacity restrictions are in place and people need to adhere to them. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. One sentiment that I've encountered is the sentiment, the argument that this should not have been pushed. The, you know, what, why did the community need to push back against Governor Cuomo? Couldn't they have just dealed with, dealt with this severe limit for a few weeks and then moved on? After all, the order didn't last very long. Uh, what, why, why this big investment in activism against Governor Cuomo when just sitting tight for a few weeks could have um, resolved the issue? Um, so I think, you know, what this really gets to the heart of is questions about, um, how New York tried to implement these regulations. Um, I wrote something early on when it came out, you know, one of my initial frustrations when I saw, uh, New York's restrictions was that the executive order, Governor Cuomo's executive order explained what happened if you were in a hotspot, but he didn't provide any metrics for how you became a red zone or an orange zone or a yellow zone. You know, here in California, where I live, um, the way it works is your county is given a zone, a, a color-coded zone, um, based on numbers that are published every day. Like you can see what's going on. So you kind of know where you're headed. Um, there's you know, pretty decent accountability, I would say, um, on that count. Um, in New York, you didn't have any of that. New York, they said, you know, right before, right in the, I believe it was during the Chol Hamoid Sukkot, um, in advance of Simchas Torah, um, if uh, if you're red zone, here's what happens. But there was no transparency really around the numbers, and I think that got a lot of stuff off on the wrong foot. So you had a situation where nobody really knew who was being regulated and what numbers they had to hit in order to be considered a hotspot. And I, I think that ambiguity around the numbers has really plagued quite a lot um, of this entire saga. So when you say, like, why did people push this? I think part of it was there was real concern that the rules weren't transparent and maybe that meant weren't being applied fairly. Now, I have no reason to assume they weren't be, being applied quite fairly. But, you know, one of the things the Supreme Court noted in taking the case was how many times these zones had been reclassified um, over the past couple of weeks. And, and I think what broke a lot of people in terms of their assumption of, you know, why not just let it play out, you know, let the numbers work their way through, you know, on the eve of the, uh, the case uh, uh, being decided by the Supreme Court, Governor Cuomo sent a letter saying, uh, by the way, uh, the churches aren't in, a, in one of the more severe zones anymore. And in fact, the area with um, the Aguda Shuls also got reclassified. And, and nobody knew why, like the letter didn't say because they got below a certain threshold or it didn't explain everything. It was just like, poof, everyone's out of the zone. You know, some justices use that as an opportunity to say, oh, you know, what's the biggie? Why do we have to do this? And, and some people in turn said to the Aguda and you know, other advocacy organizations, you know, why are you pushing this? It's all moot now. And I actually think, you know, for the five justices, it was just the opposite. There was this sense of you know, what are the numbers and how does this work? And is it just a switch that government turns on and off um, in ways that make one wonder about government overreach? You know, when you have transparency and clear metrics, you might say to yourself, you know, I see where the numbers are going on and off. I can figure it out. Let's let it work through. When you're in a system that was originally built without numbers, 
numbers, actually metrics, came two weeks later. But then it appears that the switch can be turned off without clear explanation of the metrics. I think people grew concerned that, you know, can we can we trust? Um, again, I have no reason to believe that we can't trust. But the lack of numbers and metrics and the switch going on and off for these churches and, and shuls, um, I think pressed the point that, you know, somebody's got to push this case in order to make sure that we do hold government accountable, that we have data-based regulation, as opposed to, you know, things that are more based on the whim of government. That, I would actually say in a public health crisis, that's when you um, genuinely get yourself in trouble. I'd add one last irony on this point, which is, you know, let's assume for a moment the Aguda in its reply brief actually provides some uh, reasons why they, they think this is true. Let's assume for the moment that Governor Cuomo at the very last minute changed the zones for all the plaintiffs merely in an attempt to moot the case, to say there's no problem anymore. That's happened in the past, right? That that, that governments have done that, right? They've revoked um, regulations to avoid court cases that thought they might lose, right? That's, That's right. This is the voluntary cessation. This is a thing that happens. And you can imagine, just forget about the pandemic. If you let government say, anytime they're regulating somebody, um, if they turn off the switch for a minute, the court can't hear the case. So then government would turn off the switch right before a court heard the case. They were done. Then they turned the switch on back again. It, it doesn't work, right? That's why we have a doctrine that says, you know, this isn't a, that's not how it works. But you might say, listen, they don't need a grant emergency relief now. That maybe that's kind of how the argument goes. And, you know, so, you know, some justices bought that argument, but not five of them, obviously, as we now know, didn't. You know, one of the things that I would say about this, the irony in all of this is that, um, by turning off the switch, he took a lot of zones that were in red zones and orange zones. Um, and he actually, forget about the 10-person and 25-person restrictions, he opened them up to allow for 50% capacity. You know, if this is a real public health issue, if I lived in New York, I wouldn't want the governor switching, you know, turning the switch on and off for regulation based on, you know, him trying to avoid the Supreme Court. I'd want him turning it on and off based on what the data says and trying to protect public health. And my hope in, at the end of all this is, um, is that all governors learn the lesson. The lesson is you know, data-based regulation is the way to do it. Narrowly tailored regulation is the best way to protect the public and balance it against other important social values. And not to have a situation where, you know, we, we allow this kind of... Uh, wishy-washy forms of regulation. Um, I actually think in the end, pressing this case and explaining the challenge of how regulation was going on, my sincere hope is that it in the long term ends up protecting public health. Because it leads to greater trust and the, by forcing the government to show their work, then there's more buy-in, hopefully from the public, that the decisions that are made are not being made to favor certain industries or favor certain biases, but are being made on sound science. Yeah. And I would even say it's also, and that it isn't turned off for somebody who the governor favors at a certain point. I mean, forget about Cuomo in particular. Um, you know, there's always an impulse for politicians sometimes to make their lives easier. Just turn off the regulation for a bit because it'll turn down the pressure. It's not what we want. We want on-off switches that are transparent, that are based on data, that protect public health and balance it appropriately in a tailored way against other values. And Ultimately, I think, you know, some of the on and off stuff that was going on in New York, I actually think 
worked against Governor Cuomo uh, before the Supreme Court. Okay, thank you. So we, we uh, mentioned New York. I, I mentioned Illinois a little bit. Can you say us, uh, share a word or two about California? I know where you actually live and, and work and uh, how are things there and uh, what's your activism looking like in California? You know, in California, we have, um, we've had a lot of discussion and conversation around, you know, what the best way to approach government. Um, a number of schools out here, religious schools out here actually um, filed suit against the governor early on um, because, you know, there seemed to be some odd rules about schools had to be closed since July, but um, you could be open as day camps and daycares. You know, the same 10 kids or, or kids could be together. If you called it a day camp, it was fine. If you called it a school, it was a problem. And it wasn't clear exactly why that would be the case. Um, I think there are some, you know, cynical ways to read all this. And so we filed suit saying, you know, if we want to get together as a religious school, you say no. But if we call it a day camp, you say yes. That seems like something's off over here. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, after we filed suit and we went back and forth a little bit, um, ultimately, you know, we reached a, what I would call a settlement with the governor who actually, um, you know, gave a new interpretation to some of his rules, allowing for um, schools to get together in small cohorts and, you know, ways in which, again, to balance public health, I thought very well against um, the needs of, um, of uh, religious instruction. And so we've been quite proud, I think, of kind of some of the work we've done here and the ability of some schools to open for Limude Kodesh, um, Judaic studies, um, outdoors, and then, you know, some other um, the possibility, at least from the perspective of the state, for people to get together maybe indoors in, in much smaller groups and smaller cohorts, stable cohorts. Um, it's not clear that all levels of government are on board with the settlement, they're ongoing um, um, conversations around, you know, LA County's rules and the mayor just issued a stay-at-home order. So, you know, this is an ongoing conversation about how this is going to work. Um, you know, by and large, I think every government is trying to figure out how we balance these two needs. And, you know, what you really don't want is, I think there's this sense sometimes for some government officials to say the following, why bother taking any public health risk around prayer or certain kinds of instruction or things like that. We all know that if you just stay at home, nothing will happen. You know, I think that's an instinct people have when they're faced with something as challenging as a global pandemic to just say, come on, you and I both know if we just don't, you, you all just don't pray together, everything will be fine. It's not going to change the world in any way. It, it's a way of viewing religion as not you know, you guys can just pause it for a bit. What's the biggie? We have bigger fish to fry right now. And I think that's what what I think a lot of advocates are trying to push back against, that this is stuff that, you know, you, you recognize how all these other things with that go on within the human condition matter. We need you to understand not as much as other things, but, but a little bit. Um, you've got to make a little bit of space for this because we really, really believe it matters. And if you ask me, it's that impulse that the First Amendment, at least part of it, is trying to push back against. The worry that people who just, faith and religion isn't quite their thing, that when they view it, their reaction will be, just pause it. The stress is too big. And I think in all jurisdictions, people are trying to find ways to work with government, I think in responsible ways, hopefully, um, to explain both why it matters and kind of how we can thread the needle between between religion and public health. 
Thank you very much for um, sharing your experience and your wisdom with with me and with uh, the listeners of the podcast and uh, look forward to reading uh, future articles and your scholarship and um, and future conversations. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And let me say the following. Let, let's hope the next time we talk, we're not talking about a pandemic anymore. Um, everyone's healthy and safe and doing well. And uh, we've moved on to other things. So many great religion, uh, religious freedom issues to discuss in future conversations. Uh, let's yes. move on. <laughs> Fair enough. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of The Straw Hat. This is Straw Hat producer Haley Leventhal. We'd also like to thank Professor Avi Helfand for joining us on the podcast this week and taking the time to share some of his expertise with us. I hope you all have a wonderful Hanukkah. Um, we have a lot of Hanukkah events coming up at the Shul, so please check your emails, check the website, and join us. We'll be having candle lighting every night and a couple of other special events for adults, for families. Lots of things going on. Have a wonderful holiday, and we hope you'll join us again in two weeks for our next episode.